Welcome to Grandma Magic, a podcast from the Grandmother Collective. We are a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for a world where a grandmother's power is seen, cultivated, and activated for positive change. The Grandma Magic podcast is an opportunity to learn more about the unique positions that grandmothers, aunties, and other older women around the world can play in advancing positive social development. By talking to and learning from grandmother changemakers, We hope that this series inspires you, brings you joy, and helps you recognize the enduring magic and wisdom that comes from grandmothers everywhere. My name is Lindsay Farrell, and I'm your host today. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Rana Dajani, who recently became a grandmother. Rana's accomplishments are numerous. The headlines are that she is a professor of biology and biotechnology at Hashemite University near Amman, Jordan, and co-founder of the organization We Love Reading which has trained a generation of people to read aloud to their children and instill a love of reading early, combining research, skills, and a drive for evidence-based impact. Dr. Dijani's organization has introduced reading to 4,400 libraries in over 60 countries. For this work, she's been awarded numerous accolades, including fellowships from Eisenhower, Schwab, Ashoka, UNESCO, UNHCR, Jacobs, and Wise, among many others. Today, we will talk with her about her work, her change-making journey, and probably most interesting to me personally, how this work catalyzes long-term cultural change through reading and skills development. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dijani. It's a pleasure and an honor to share and learn. Oh, thank you. As you know, we're very interested in grandmothers, and we always find that everyone has a story of some grandmother figure in their life that inspired them or provided a foundation or made a difference to them. And so we like to find out from our guests if they have an inspiring story of a grandmother figure in their life. So that's a very good question. And it made me reflect on the different matriarchal women in my life. So growing up, there was women all over in my story. First of all, my mother, and then my grandmother from my mother's side and my father's side, and then my great-grandmother. She used to come and live and spend a long time with us. And from her, I learned a lot of things. So this is my great-grandmother. I learned from her patience, tranquility, quiet wisdom, and just being there. And I think being there is sometimes very, very important. And I draw that line of maternal motherhood. I draw from it, even going beyond. I like to imagine and think of her mother and her grandmother and keep going backwards in time maybe way back in evolutionary history. And I like to compare it to evolutionary biology because you know that we all inherit our mitochondrial DNA from our mother, not from our father. (laughs) So the mother line is direct. And it makes me just imagine that I carry that mitochondrial DNA that was carried by all those women that came before me and everything they have experienced in their lives, both good and bad, and how that impacted them and their DNA and how I inherited that. And what am I doing today with that? So to me, that's the story I like to tell about my great-grandmother and every woman before her as well. Thanks for sharing that. Thinking about mitochondrial DNA through that lens really gives us something to chew on. Okay, so let's dig into this foundation that was set by your great-grandmother and share some more about the impact that you're making in the world. Tell us about your work. You wear a couple hats, maybe more than two, but I think we're most interested in understanding this work that you've been doing with We Love Reading. 
Yeah. So, you know, we all do our work, whether as parents, caregivers, and then we have our jobs, if we have a job. But sometimes I like to say what's beyond that, right? And this comes from a feeling of responsibility that I grew up with from my mother, which is that we are all guardians. And this comes from my mother and our culture and our heritage as Muslims, mm-hmm. that everyone is a guardian. And so we have a responsibility towards not just our core family, but the whole world around us. So I realized that I have to go beyond the walls of my home, beyond the walls of my classroom, of my lab, to the outside world and see how I can employ my skills and my knowledge to help the world around me. And it's a responsibility. And that's when I realized that children don't read for fun. And growing up, not having a TV at home and reading a lot, realizing how reading actually unleashed my inner potential and exposed me to the whole world around me, making me discover the world around me. And how powerful that was in really planting those seeds for me to have the courage to be the change maker, the empathy to learn about others. And regardless of my circumstances, that I can at least control what's going to happen and how I can make a difference. And that's why I thought every child should fall in love with reading. And I started, again, using my scientific mind and methodology to find out why children don't read for fun. And I realized it because they don't love to. And the question became, how do I help a child fall in love with reading? And the answer was reading aloud. They have to see a role model. And of course, I read aloud to my kids, but it had to be more, right? And knowledge is responsibility. And that's when the idea of starting reading aloud to the children in my own neighborhood. And that's how it started in 2006. I gathered the children and read aloud to them in the local mosque because we wanted a public space where all the children could come to. And it was a family project, my husband, my kids. And after three years of reading aloud and kind of trial and error, figuring out the model, and kind of reducing it to the most empirical formula where you the least input to the maximum output. Again, a lot of scientific way of thinking. And it turned out that that's what they call human-centered design. I like to call it evolution because it's trial and error. It's like until you get the best fit, natural selection, and it's prime and social work. And that's when I took the program. Actually, I was doing that journey. And I turned it into a training program to train women and men and youth all over the world to do what I did. So I walked the walk and I wanted them to walk the walk. And that we called that journey, We Love Reading. So now We Love Reading is a nonprofit organization. It's a really basically a training program. It's changing mindsets through reading to create change makers. It's a free online. The people who come are volunteers. We don't pay them. And they get to choose wherever they want to read books that relate to their own culture. They have to read in their native language. And they own the program and they are free to quit whenever they want. And it's that intricate agency within the training that allows them to own the program and therefore get all the credit from the community. And that's what keeps the program sustainable and running years after that initial few hours of training. I'm curious, when did it become a nonprofit? One of the things that I think we're hearing a lot from people as we try to encourage them to see themselves as change makers is that they're not really interested in starting a whole organization. So what was the journey for you to make that choice? So it was an idea, which I implemented in my neighborhood for three years. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, while I was doing that, I would tell people about what I'm doing. I would invite them to start reading aloud in their own neighborhoods, but they don't know how to read aloud and they're not used to volunteering outside their family. Or people would pat me on the back and say, oh, good job, but I know that was it. And I think it would have remained that way, not more, other than there was this award called the Arab Social Innovator Award that was announced. And my friend told me, Rena, why don't you go apply? So I actually wrote my story, just like I just told you now. And the organization that was running that program, it's called Synergos, it's based in New York. They gave me the award. And I was just an individual. I was not an organization. 
And I really thank them for that because most funders' awards go to organizations. And I tell them, between an idea and an organization, there's a lot of things that have to happen. And if nobody picks up or supports somebody as an individual with an idea, a lot of good ideas are going to not flourish and will fall through the cracks when funders say only organizations. So some funders should always only fund people. It's a risk they have to take, but it's worth it. And look at me. I was worth their bet. <laughs> and so I'm sure there are others out there. And, you know, that's part of the risk taking. Now, the award came with capacity building and support. So they advised me. They taught me how to write a business plan. You know, I'm a scientist. I don't do business plans. And that I, I should create a nonprofit. So I registered a nonprofit. They helped me. There was pro bono help with lawyers to do that. And I learned with help and advice from people around me and family members. And I created the nonprofit, which, of course, funders will fund a legal entity more than an individual. But I needed that boost, that activation. And that's why this is a shout out to philanthropists and funders to keep some of that money for those ideas and search for them and find them because it's worthwhile. That's interesting. So besides the idea that you had based on coming home, it sounds like from the story I read, you came home from studying and realized nobody loved reading and there were no libraries in Jordan or not very many. And so you were compelled to do that. But can you speak a little to how you knew you were a guardian or you were responsible? What was the sort of aha moment to recognize your change making and your need to do something in the world? Yeah. So it's that feeling of agency. I think every human being has an intrinsic feeling of agency. That's how we survived as a species. The challenge is that we lose it with time, the way the society is structured, the way schooling is structured. We become dependent. And depending on the circumstances, we even reach a situation where in some cases we are like victims. We behave as victims. And we wait for someone to save us or we blame others uh, rather than taking responsibility. So growing up as a Muslim in my family, we didn't think that way. For us, Islam, our faith was about responsibility. It's about you have to do something. And my mother was that role model, going out, gathering the children and giving them lessons of morals and ethics, taking them for trips. I'm the eldest of eight sisters. So growing up with eight girls at home, I felt that responsibility with them all the time. So every summer, I'd design for them programs. We would do summer school, which I would design for them. We'd go on camping trips. I remember dragging them up to see Haley's Comet because I thought, oh my God, it's not going to come for another 76 years. You won't be around for it. So I dragged them all to the rope to see it. So I felt this responsibility, feeding them vitamins and making sure they're having good nutrition. So this feeling of responsibility was inherent in my upbringing. And so it came natural when I had my own home to think, what can I do for my wider community? So this is about role modeling, and this is about intergenerational. When I see my mother doing that, I unconsciously emulate her and do that. And I see it in my kids now, what they're doing in serving the community and taking that responsibility, that feeling of agency. And I have kind of modeled it in We Love Reading. Because I took my journey of three years of reading aloud to the children and turned it into a training program so every woman or man or youth can become a change maker by walking that walk, helping them rediscover that innate capacity inside them, taking responsibility and not being the victim. And of course, what we were discovered, and this is drawing from research and even evolutionary biology, is that when you're doing something because of agency, meaning you have an intrinsic motivation to do it. You're doing it because you want to, not because you have to. You're not doing it for an extrinsic reward, not for money, and not because you don't want to be punished. You're doing it because you want to. Then you have a feeling of purpose, and you're happier, and you're more creative, 
And the more creative you are, the more a change maker and the more you look around you and you think, oh my God, what else can I do? So this is the whole essence of the program. The woman who gets the training, we call her a Wheel of Reading Ambassador. Once she starts reading aloud to the children, she starts thinking, oh my God, if I can make this difference in the children's lives, in the parents' lives, in the community, what else can I do? So she looks around and starts saying, hmm. for example, in one neighborhood, a woman said, oh my God, you know, look at all the garbage in the streets. And she and the children cleaned up the whole neighborhood. And she got an award from the municipality for being the cleanest neighborhood in all of the Ahmed capital. Other woman said, oh my God, look, I see the teenager girls. They're wasting their time. So that she gathered them and made a book club. And so on. So everyone goes on and beyond and really becomes a change maker. And this was a journey for me. When I first started Real Love Reading, it was about fostering a love of reading to discover the world. But then with time, we realized that this is not just about the children. It's actually about our adults, the ambassadors, which are majority women discovering themselves. So the program became fostering this feeling of agency in women. And then lastly, recently it evolved because we were looking at systems change and we were looking at the sustainable development goals. And so we changed it to, we love reading is about changing mindsets through reading to create change makers. And the reason we chose that is that I don't want to scale a program I started in Jordan. I want to scale the mindset change. And then everybody does what they want in their own community because they know best what's good for their community. I don't know. But it's about trusting them and it's about them trusting themselves to take that responsibility and to just unleash that potential and run with it. I find it so interesting that you went from, okay, let's get everybody to read. I'm going to read to some children to we're going to unleash change making potential around the world through a simple training. I feel like the first time that we chatted, you were like, let's just make this simple so you can unlock that. You have this quote on your website that says, you catalyze long-term cultural change through reading and skill development. What does that cultural change look like? And is it looking like the same mindset shift or is it different in different locations? So it is different in different locations. Each person is unique. Their DNA is unique. Their community and where they grew up is unique and special. And so they are very special and they know their community and their challenges much more than us. We function is to, like I said, ignite that inner innate agency and then let the magic happen. That's basically what we should do because in any other capacity, we are imposing what we think is right on them. And that is so wrong in every way possible. And it takes away their agency, which is the worst thing ever. So it's just about our values, our trust and integrity and respect. And that's it. And I think this way, First, two things. One, you mentioned the word simplicity. Yes, we don't want complicated, sophisticated programs that may achieve the same thing, but are too complex to be practical or too costly. So what can I do that's so simple that can have the same impact? And because I'm drawing on intrinsic motivation, it should be simple. It's about finding the right trigger, finding the right approach, the right strategy, which is built on trust and human evolution, social evolution. The second thing is that we are not just working to solve the problems of today or achieving the sustainable development goals of 2030. There are other problems that will crop up, right? Life continues. So the idea is not having a quick mandate to solve something. The idea is how can I change how people look at the world around them so that they are continuously solving all the time. And not just that, that brings me to the third point, which is we wake up every morning and then we go back to sleep and we continue to live. If we don't have a purpose, life becomes boring. And then we all know from research, the best purpose is to feel that you are serving your community or making someone else happy. That gives the most satisfaction ever. 
you know, people look for happiness and money, but in the end, really, what gives you happiness is feeling you've helped someone else. So therefore, if I can discover that innate intrinsic motivation and have that agency and keep on trusting myself to keep solving and solving, I'm a happier person. My community is a happier community and the whole world becomes better. So it's interesting, this idea of purpose. We also know that purpose is one of the keys to longevity so that people live longer when they have purpose. And that's a key part of what we think about at the Grandmother Collective, that you know in no time like today have we had this many people living as long as they're living. And the old story of what you're supposed to do after you're done having children and after you're done working is really evolving and shifting and changing. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit to what you've maybe noticed. So we've connected because you also have grandmothers or older women that are part of this at We Love Reading. Is there a uniqueness in the way that they approach change making or have you changed as you aged in the way that you are thinking? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have changed. And you only realize that you've changed once you've walked the walk. If I had told my younger self, my younger self would have said, no, I don't think so. So, yes, what I've seen in myself and other grandmothers is that, first of all, having a grandchild grounds you all over again. And you're reminded what is life all about? Because we get distracted on doing a hundred million things and we're not always happy. But having a grandchild reminds you that, again, I, ha I have to go back to evolution. It's how we survive. It's about having every generation and just seeing a child grow up from an infant to a toddler to a child and then a teenager and being in their lives, sharing your experiences and learning from them at the same time. It's a win-win for both. They get the wisdom and the advice and the support and the love and the care and the stability of having a grandparent around. But as grandparents, we get that feeling of happiness and purpose and that we matter. And that's so important for our own mental health. So for both sides, it impacts mental health. And we see it. And where do we see it most? In vulnerable communities. That's where you can really see the impact of these things that we evolved as a species. We may not see them in communities where there isn't a lot of trauma because there's so many other things masking it. I'll give you a real example. So in Jordan with the Syrian refugee crisis, a lot of the international NGOs advised young couples not to have children. Okay, because they're displaced, you're in a refugee camp. So we were interviewing as a scientist because I studied trauma and how it's inherited across generations. We were interviewing a family of a grandmother and her daughter and we were talking about what they went through during the war and then when they came to Jordan. And the grandmother said something so profound. I remember I was so moved. She said, they told us that my daughter shouldn't have a child, but they were newlyweds and they had a child. And she said, that baby made the whole difference in our lives because they were all in one room, the three generations. They didn't have a job. There was no hope. They didn't know what's going to happen. Their grandfather was what used to be in prison in Syria for 17 years. So already his mental health was terrible. And, and then suddenly this little baby came. Oh, I mean, every time I remember, I want to cry because so this little baby came and all of them were around this little baby waiting for the little baby to coo, waiting for the little baby to say mama or baba, or even just to, you know, she took her first step. She had her first tooth. And then suddenly everybody was happy. There was purpose in life. The grandfather came out of his, you know, solitude. Everybody wanted to go find the solution to get something for this baby. Everybody was around this baby. And believe me, any mental health therapy would not have been equal to just that baby for all those members of that family with no cost or something natural, right? And then even if there was a little cost, it's nothing compared to the cost of mental health therapy 
which is not even available. I mean, we've been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. So if we just trust that and go with it, and I'm acknowledging there are cases where you need, really need mental health therapy. I'm not talking about those, but I'm talking about the majority of cases where you could actually, this is preventive. This is preventive therapy by having a baby in there. And, and to me, that's the power of what the grandchild can do to the grandparent. And it helps. And now, you know, in communities where families are very close and actually to the extent that the grandparent lives with their children and grandchildren, everybody's much healthier and they're more balanced and aware of their responsibilities in life than when everybody's disconnected and living in different places, which is also harking back to our evolutionary history. And one other thing is that, you know, as a species, as homo sapiens, we have the longest childhood compared to any other species even to other mammals who are close to us, like chimpanzees or bonobos. And that long extended childhood is important because it's about learning social interaction, which comes from the parent and the grandparent because the parent is busy having other children or getting food on the table, let's say. So now step in the grandparent who doesn't have to get the food on the table is not making other babies. And so that's how they complement each other in this family unit, taking care of all the children in the family together. You're speaking kind of of the grandmother hypothesis, right? This idea that we've evolved and are able to age as long as we have. And I think there's even pieces of the grandmother hypothesis that the emotions that we have and the social complexity we have is because grandmothers were in this caretaking role, freeing up mothers and fathers to hunt and provide and build and do other things. Is that right? Yes. And it's so healthier, right? for a child to be taking care of a grandparent than to be in a nursery or after-school program because of the care and the connection and so on. There's so much to learn just by looking within and building those social interactions. And of course, nothing's easy, but you choose your heart. I love this. There was a saying that said, both are hard, but so choose your heart. Do you want to be hard and have a grandparent or hard and have like a nursery and run around and putting the kids and taking them back and not worrying, are they being treated well at school, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I mean, you know, urbanization has upended family structures in many parts of the world. I personally have moved very far from my family for work, and I find myself in a community, and we sort of all have gotten stuck kind of in the modern era. So I wonder if in your work, you're also seeing, in anthropology, we call it fictive kin, if you're seeing that we love reading fosters intergenerational relationships that fill that gap but they might not actually be blood kin. Yes, absolutely. So all these grandparents, and not just grandmothers, actually even grandfathers who are retired, suddenly they really loved Wheel of Reading because before that they were kind of, okay, taking care of the kids or not even doing that, but not having a purpose, especially if some of them had careers before that. And then suddenly they had this very simple thing, which is just reading aloud to the children. Even we had some grandmothers who didn't know how to read. And they went and actually enrolled in a literacy class and learned how to read. And it's because you're reading only to kids. And suddenly they became relevant and important. They had something they had to plan for, which gives them purpose. Again, back to purpose and fulfillment and happiness. So it was, a, it was a lifesaver. So that's the magic of We Love Reading. Because it was developed organically, like I told you, trial and error, it served a lot more than what it started over with, which is very evolutionary. It became a program for children, a program for adults, a program for youth, a program for grandparents, a program about agency, a program about literacy, a program about mental health. So because it's very close to human nature. Yeah. And a program, it sounds like, too, if they're reading in local languages, where I would imagine 
Some places there isn't the same volume of books, that it's also pushing for a cultural preservation. Yeah, I love what you say. So that's another thing we need to add to uh, what is we love reading about. And we've seen it because we've had people from indigenous tribes in New Zealand who said we don't have books in our local, local language. And so we added to the training a module on how to write down your folklore in your native language so you can read it aloud to the children. And another instance in Mexico, there was another indigenous group. They told us, actually, we love reading gave us the courage and the trust to send our kids to school because school is in Spanish. And they wouldn't send their children to school because they were worried they would lose their identity. But with We Love Reading, they said we are reading stories in our native language about our culture. And that way we feel we can preserve it enough to send our kids to learn in a Spanish-speaking school. So absolutely, you're right. Wow, that's amazing. An offshoot of this for anyone listening would be to create a program to help publish those stories in folklore. Amazing. All right, so I'm curious. You've spoken a little bit about sort of the shift that happened for you as you became a grandmother. But how do you approach grandmothering itself? Okay, let me explain why I'm asking that question. We think about grandmothering as a verb too. Grandmother is a way of acting. It's different than mothering. It's different than grandfathering. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to, maybe you don't agree with me, but what to grandmother means to you. I like that question. And it piques my curiosity. It tickles my brain. So my granddaughter is only 10 months old. So I'm still at the beginning of the grandmothering. And to me, the grandmothering, it brought joy. It was all about joy. It was about joy in every meaning of the word. And maybe I'll start with even when I realized that she was in my daughter's uterus. (laughs) I was in awe that my cells are continuing into forever. That was mind-blowing. And then now when I see her, I see she is part of me and I am part of her. And that we continue within each other. And I going back to that first question of connecting to my grandmother and great-grandmother and so on, I see it continuing now. So those are like really mind-boggling ideas to me about grandmothering. The other thing is that I want to be in her life. The things that I've learned that I didn't know when I was bringing up my own kids, that I wished I knew. But that's life. As a parent, you do your best. And every parent, you should never feel guilty. I say that to myself. You did what you felt was the best at that time with the knowledge you had and the circumstances you had. So now that I get kind of a second chance, I want to be there and I want to share what I've learned. But at the same time, (laughs) grandmothering is also about respecting your children being parents and not interfering in them and allowing them to make that exploration and to be on their own journey. Because again, you're always learning. They may be right. You don't always think that because you're older, you know better. Not always. So that was a very humbling experience for me as well, to tell my daughter that I am here for you, that I will do what you want. And that's all part of, to me, of the grandmother. And maybe the other thing is, I feel so happy that I'm there for my daughter, to help her with her daughter, that I could be in her life and be that support for her. So those are what I feel when I think of grandmothering. But then the dream and the potential of what's coming. I dream of her. I dream of holding her hand or she holding my hand and taking walks out in nature and listening to her, sharing her thoughts, her reflections, because I have time now and I'm wiser to really listen and to give her. So this grandmothering is like a gift. It's a true gift for those who get it, who are old enough, live long enough to have it and are lucky that their children have children. And it could be you don't have children or grandchildren, but you become that figure for someone else. And that's the same feeling. And it's about being optimistic. You know, I'm very optimistic. 
And seeing a grandchild growing up and grandmothering her is all about hope and about a better future because you see in their eyes their curiosity, their positivity, their openness and love of life, and their courage to think, their trust in themselves that they think, we could do anything. And we need to remind ourselves of that because sometimes when you grow older, you become a little bit cynical. Some people are like that. And this is a good reminder that no, the world is in a good place because of this whole new generation. Yeah. One thing we hear a lot is that it's like there's a switch that all of a sudden, all the stuff that's been burying you and stressing you out, it goes away. But now you're looking at a person who has a whole future ahead. And what we're seeing a lot is that some of our grandmothers, that's when they make the decision, like, I have to participate. I have to be involved. I have to do something so that this new person in my life has a future. And so they're getting involved in climate change or they're getting involved in democracy or they're getting involved in various things because of that. So that said, you already had it. You're a change maker from whatever age early. What are you going to do next? So I want to make the world a better place for them. And I have a purpose now. And you know what? I don't care what happened because I'm old. So it's so freeing, right? You have nothing to worry about or care about except your purpose to make this world a better place. And actually, that's a very deep question. Like, what is that cause that I want to adopt? And I was thinking of that on New Year's Eve. I was alone because I left the kids and their friends. And I was thinking, what do I want to do with what's left of my life? And I was seeking, what is that thing that I think? And one thing I am planning to work on, and exactly what you said, is I want to make this world a better place for the future generation. I owe it to them. But I want to do something that I think I'm good at and that not many people are working on, which is social justice. That as many people are working on, there's not enough. And when I say social justice, I start from my home. So I'm half Palestinian. So my father is from Jerusalem and I'm half Syrian. My mother's from Aleppo. But Jerusalem is where my father and his family were there for 500 years. So speaking of grandmothers, grandmothers, grandmothers. And yet in 1948, when he was five, they had to leave because of Zionists taking over their homes in West Jerusalem. So my way of what I want to do with the rest of my life is bringing justice, social justice, to what's happening in Palestine and helping people go back to their homes, to where they grew up, to their olive trees, and so that my grandchild will have a place to go back to. Actually, the name of my grandchild in Arabic is Aida, which means to go back, to return. And my daughter said that she named her daughter Aida because she hopes that she'll be the last person in that generation to have to use the word return because we will all have returned. And I hope I can participate in making that happen one way or another. That is a big, bold, audacious goal, but we would not expect any less from you. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today and giving us some things to chew on and advice. I think I'm just going to close the final question. What advice would you give to grandmothers who are maybe starting a change-making journey? Where do they start? Well, first, thank you for calling me grandmother. <laughs> this is a new role, <laughs> and I'm so excited to be in that capacity. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> in terms of advice, you know, trust yourself. You know it. You've been there. You've walked the walk. We know what we've done right, and we know what we've done wrong. And it's okay. It's okay. You know, there's nothing to lose anymore. And that's so freeing. So just trust your gut feeling and do what you think is right because there's nothing to lose and everything to gain. And we owe it not just to ourselves, but we owe it to those grandchildren to create a better world for them. 
even if that means our lives are going to be shorter, it's okay. It's for a good cause. You're making the world a better place and we will continue living through our grandchildren. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.